Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week it is another Womp Womp Wednesday. Niner fans everywhere definitely wanted the mercy rule and the running clock in the fourth quarter. Uh, and this week, we welcome back good old friend of the pod, back from these fancy job interviews and football coach, and it's one Mr. Jared Brown. How you doing? Doing well, my friend. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for uh, keeping the seat warm. Absolutely, dude. Well, it's been a few weeks since we last chatted, but it's good to have you. It's under unfortunate circumstances because the 49ers, of course, lost in spectacular fashion versus the Rams. I mean, I guess spectacular in the worst sense of the term because it was just I mean, it was just a good old fashioned beatdown. Yeah, it was for uh, maybe the first four minutes felt like, boy, this might be a game. And then it got ugly in a hurry and stayed equally as ugly. That's, I mean, honestly, I think ugly in a hurry is exactly it. And I was actually surprised right off the top in how close the Niners were, despite the fact that the Rams, of course, are probably the best team in football right now. Really, it started out all about turnovers and sloppy play. But the Niners were really in it, or at least had a chance to be in it, all the way through into almost the third quarter. I mean, you've got the opening drive stop, and then you have the the C.J. Beathard, what I'm calling the interfumble, because I don't know whether or not that was an interception or a fumble. I don't care what it was ruled on the field. It looked like a bit of both. So I'm going to call it the interfumble. And then you've got the dropped tart interception. You hold the Rams to a field goal and then Brita fumbles more like, you know, he got the ball ripped away, but either which way it all counts the same. You allow a touchdown. It's still just 10 to zero. They fumble a snap. They get behind the chains. The series ends with maybe football's first six man punt block play where, you know, Mark Nazocha just is like, nah, I'm gonna go ahead and let this guy run through. No big deal. But even then, it's 15-0, to still a two-score game. And then you've got the Beathard pick. You've got a TD pass to Cooks at the end of the second quarter. The 49ers have their most impressive drive, down 22-0. to They score a TD. They're ready to get the ball back in the second half. They could do that whole Madden score at the end of the first half, get the ball back, score again. If they do that, it's 14-22. to It's a one-score game. But then they get sacked on the opening play of the second quarter. They throw a pick on their last chance in the drive. I mean, it, then it just starts to avalanche after that. But really, they had a chance with their opening drive in the third quarter to just be down one score. And, and that's kind of been the story of the season. It was an elegant tank until, you know, Aaron Donald took over. Yeah, and he took over in, in horrendous fashion. But that, I mean, the entire game, as you mentioned, just felt sort of indicative of where this team is at. It's like one step forward, just enough uh, looking good to make you think that there's a legit opportunity there and then they can't get out of their own way, whether it's Tart dropping what looks like a one of the easier interceptions you're going to get in the NFL, you know, fumbled snaps, balls being ripped out, inability to really get a good drive coming out of halftime, all those small things that, you know, not just good teams, but even average teams, you know, take advantage of those opportunities in there. They're at a spot where they're not good enough to not take advantage of those opportunities. And when they don't, you get exactly what we saw this game, which is a, a better team taking advantage and putting it on them in a hurry. Well, I think the first thing that jumped out to me in this game was that CJ Beathard went back to being rookie Beathard. He was atrocious this game. And part of the reason that he was so good against Green Bay was just because he played out of his mind that first half. I mean, if you look at his first half grade, uh, we talked about it against Green Bay. His first half grade was damn near elite. I mean, it was it was in the high 80s if you're looking at PFF grading. He was dropping dimes all over the place. He was hitting open receivers. And, and against the Rams, whoa, man, it's a whole different story. He was pressured on 49% of his snaps. He only attempted nine passes on 17 pressure dropbacks and completed just two passes while under pressure. And and honestly, one of those incompletions was the interfumble. But even if he makes that throw, I'm not sure that doesn't end up in the Rams' hands anyway. When you look at the, the end zone view, that ball was not going to go into a good place if he completes that pass or if he attempts that pass all the way. And so you look at really what he's done under pressure, and that was the, the pressure kind of brought him back to his core. And unfortunately, his core was rookie Beathard, and, and it was not good Beathard. He seems to be sort of at this spot where not only is he not progressing, but he's he's definitely regressing at least week to week from the Green Bay game to the Los Angeles game. He looks like a player that still isn't fairly isn't terribly comfortable seeing the field, doesn't have the kind of pocket presence you'd like from a long term starter. And you know, I don't I don't know that anybody's expecting him to be a long term starter, but this is the NFL and you can't predict predict injuries when he is expected to step up. You know, ideally 
he's never going to be the guy. But you'd like to not think that it's an immediate wash of the season if the backup has to step in. In this case, it being a second-year player doesn't do the 49ers any favors. But he looks to to be a player that can't that can't make mistakes and still expect to sort of be competitive in a game. He's got to be just about perfect for them to hang in games. And, and unfortunately, against the Rams, it was far from that. Well, I don't know what team in the NFL now has a quarterback that can go in and and maintain their season at the same level if their starter goes down. I don't think the expectation for C.J. Beathard should be that that he is a long-term starter. I mean, he's a backup. He's a clear backup quarterback. And ideally, I think for a backup, what you want them to do is come in, spot starts, win a couple games. At their best, I think you want to have the Nick Foles scenario but but I think that's that's the outlier, right? Having a Hall of Famer behind a Hall of Famer, Steve Young, Joe Montana, uh, Aaron Rodgers, Brett Favre. I think that's the extreme outlier. And, and I think Beathard, I think he has been better this year than he was last year. The problem was when when you pressure players, when you really, really just make them react on instinct, their instinct, if they haven't had years and years of grooming for that to get ingrained, it goes back to what they know. And unfortunately for Beathard, what he knows is, is just not great football. His, of course, his grade when he was pressured was 35.1. His grade when he wasn't pressured wasn't terrible. It was slightly above average. And I think that's what you would want from a backup quarterback. Just like kind of slightly above average because if they were much better than that, then they, they wouldn't be a backup quarterback. I don't know that there are... How many teams do you think have a starter that, with the roster talent that the Niners have right now, could win more than eight games? That's a good. I would say maybe maybe five, and that's if you think that Pat Mahomes is very legit, and that's less Andy Reid than it is him. Oh, dude! If Pat Mahomes and Kyle Shanahan were to have an offensive baby, I would just I would start a new religion. I would. I would I would pray at the altar of that team. It would be amazing, but but yeah, I just I just think that you know you got to put Beathard in context. He's a he's a backup for a reason. His his I don't know that you want the best quality for your quarterback to consistently be toughness. Yeah, I mentioned that on Sunday. You know, he gets I said he gets a lot of attaboys. Like boy, C.J. Beathard really takes some shots. Yeah, it's because he, it's ridiculous, right? It's because he can't get the <laughs> ball out in rhythm, you know, fifty percent of the time, and because he doesn't have great pocket presence. And like you mentioned, he is a backup. And in addition to that, he came from an offense in college, Iowa, not traditionally known for slinging the rock all over the place. So he's sort of coming in at a deficit to begin, and and the idea is maybe to groom him into a serviceable backup, but. There's not, you know, week in, week out, your best quality as a quarterback can't be, boy, he took another shot on the chin and he's still hanging in there. Yeah, I mean, he had some throws that he just flat out missed. I mean, he missed Goodwin on the fade route in the red zone versus cover three. He missed Kittle on a wheel route. He he just, he is, even when he has time, sometimes, I mean, this is why he's just slightly above average because he misses open receivers. And that was the thing that you want your quarterback to be able to do in Kyle Shanahan's offense, Shanahan's going to make receivers open. What your quarterback has to do is hit them. That should be the expectation for an NFL quarterback. And in this game, especially because the pressure rattled him all game, CJ Beather just didn't do that. Yeah, he the pressure obviously got to him. And in addition to that, missing receivers, when you do have them, looking back at the tape, Shanahan, I will say, is still as good as anybody, even with this talent that looks to be less than many other teams. Still as good as anybody at getting his guys open where he wants them open and doing some creative stuff with some of the athletes that they do have on offense, particularly the fullback and tight end positions that many teams don't have the level of talent that they do. And it's really up to Beathard more than anything, I think less than Jimmy Garoppolo and sort of looking at Jimmy to kind of carry the offense for Beathard, it's distribute, run the offense, facilitate not asked to do too much. And unfortunately, the pressure made it to where he couldn't even do sort of the baseline minimum. And that's part of the growing pains. And again, uh, being realistic about the expectations here, but would like to see some growth moving forward. And, and that's part of the evaluation process, too, that they're now going to get, you know, 10 games of his stuff to see uh, what he's really got. Yeah, you're absolutely right about Shanahan. I saw one play this week that I hadn't seen Shanahan run before. And obviously, I don't have like an encyclopedic knowledge of his playbook, right? I just watch a lot of Kyle Shanahan. Uh, And he had that little kind of fake jet sweep shovel pass screen to Mostert. Oh, that was was such a cool play. Oh, my goodness. It was such a cool play. 
Because usually when you're running a screen and, and you run a play action off a screen, your, your running back has to run a little bit away from you to gain distance and, and to give the, the blockers in front to get a little bit of, of space so they can you know go ahead and get out there and, and block some people. But by having the fake on the same side and then turning the pass into a shovel, it allowed a lot of really crazy things to happen. You've got the cross or the drag route coming right at the person who's supposed to be covering Mostert. So you've already confused him at that point. And then you've got Staley, who is already set to block that person either way. So it doesn't matter. But he's also in a perfect position because he chipped the defensive end, which gave Beathard a little bit of time. And then you've got an unblocked defender on the backside who had a fake block from the fullback. And then a fake block from Mostert, and he's like, oh, I've got a free run, and all of a sudden he's out of position. I mean, there were so many things that happened on that screen, and it was such an amazing play. And then, of course, Mostert does Mostert things because he's been a pretty pleasant surprise this season at the running back position specifically. We knew he was kind of a special teams ace, but that, that I think, you know, is great. It's a great play design. We have a fantastic offensive head coach. If you're one of those weird people on Twitter who's like, Shanahan's on the hot seat, get the hell out of here. Yeah, that's Don't even want to hear it because... Yeah, exactly. You're just flat out wrong. Objectively. This is not one of those subjective things. You're objectively wrong. He's a fantastic coach. He's able to maximize his talent. And that play, I think, is the best of it. What I was most impressed with by that play, I noticed that exact same one, is how seamless it looked, right? I mean, like you mentioned, so many moving parts that it's it's very easy when you've got that much stuff going on for it to sort of look sort of choppy, like players aren't quite comfortable with exactly where they're supposed to go and the angles and the the, you know... All of the little things that went into making that play sort of look and, and function the way that it did, and it just came out like it was second nature. Like that play is a staple of that offense. And at the same time, you could tell that the the Rams were not prepared for it, which is exciting to see that you know Shanahan with less talent, lesser talent, can still sort of you know compete, can still do impressive things with this offense. Is still obviously in the 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 top tier with McVay in terms of. Uh, offensive mind and play calling. And right now, McVay and particularly Andy Reid are getting a lot of love for what their offenses are doing. But the wrinkles that Kyle Shanahan can still exploit in a defense to have his offense look and and really be successful is encouraging that, uh, you know, at some point, and probably not this year because there's not making any trades here before the deadline, but at some point, this offense is going to have top tier talent at some of these critical positions, if not just fullback and tight end. And it's going to be exciting to see what Shanahan with an entire season can do with some of these players. Now, while we're on the topic of talent, talk to me a little bit about wide receivers, because I know that you wanted to get on the topic of wide receivers and how they haven't helped. And, and they've been inconsistent at times over the course of the season. So what, what did you see from the wide receivers in this game? And, and why is it that you wanted to highlight their play specifically? I think the word that you used is perfect, inconsistency. First and foremost, just mentioning sort of snap counts, Marquise Goodwin played 95% of the offensive snaps. That tells you, in comparison to the other wide receivers, that tells you what Kyle Shanahan thinks of him. He's the, the, the if there is a feature receiver, not necessarily tight end or not necessarily, a, you know, offensive weapon. If there's a feature wide receiver, it's Marquise Goodwin. In terms of other wide receivers, Pierre Garçon only played 55%, Kendrick Bourne 45%, Trent Taylor 34%, and Richie James only 5%. And today, Shanahan came out and said that you know, Garcon's sort of dealing with an injury and, and he may not be 100%. And that might sort of uh, you know, identify some of the issues Sunday in terms of snap count and what's going on. Early on in the game, Shanahan looked like he was really wanting to use 21 personnel, two backs, one tight end. Obviously, he recognizes Kittle and, and Kyle Juszczyk and, and Goodwin in terms of snap counts there as kind of the main threats right now of a fairly limited you know, offensive offensive system in terms of uh, talent. These guys aren't, you know, necessarily top tier quite yet, although Kittle is playing out of his mind, and that's very exciting. But Shanahan, at least in terms of current roster, those are the guys that he's, that he's noticing. Aside from Pettis, I don't know that, you know, sort of down in and down out, there's a, you know, above average route runner on this roster. And Marquise Goodwin is developing into that. But I think his wheelhouse is still elite speed. What's happening is that these young receivers, and particularly Richie James and Trent Taylor, these guys are being sort of stunted in terms of evaluation because Pierre Garçon is still seeing snaps. And maybe that's because, you know, he's hurt. He's the veteran. I don't know all of the nuance there in terms of what their front office and training staff is is seeing from Garcon and what he can do. But his style, especially now, and, and really for the last few years, has been 
closer to Anquan Bolden than it is to Marquise Goodwin, which is to say this is a player that doesn't necessarily separate with elite athletic ability and really is going to sort of grind out the the difficult yards. He's a possession kind of guy. He's going to fight for 50-50 balls. He's comfortable in traffic, comfortable when people get their hands on him. And the problem is that that's not the kind of throw that C.J. Beathard right now likes to make. He doesn't identify that. He's he's really closer towards Alex Smith and that he really wants to see a guy open before he's going to let it rip, is a little bit cautious, can't cycle through reads quite, quite as quick as you'd like. And so Pierre Garçon being on the field is essentially a wasted receiver spot because he can't get the targets that you'd like from a receiver that's seeing a lot of snaps. He's not really making the plays that you'd like from a veteran that's being paid well and probably is not going to be back based on contract stuff. So what's happening at receiver right now and this in some ways is indicative of the defensive backfield as well, is that they're not getting, in my opinion, a clear evaluation of some of these younger guys because they're still, whether they want to admit it or not, rebuilding this roster. And they've got to make a determination. Guys like Kendrick Bourne and Trent Taylor, are these four and five on our depth chart moving forward? Are these guys potentially two and three and four, maybe uh, low four, you know, high four on the depth chart? And they're not able to make that evaluation, I think, with Garcon sort of being still considered one of the quote-unquote starters when he's healthy. You know, I, I tend to want to agree with you about developing younger players because I think that the, the coaching staff has to realize that this is effectively a lost season. Like, you're not going to make the playoffs. You're not going to win. If you get to six games this year, I would be shocked. I really would. I think this, honestly, they're on... They're, they're looking to me like maybe a three-win team. You know, they're in contention. We're going to talk about it a little bit later, but this is going to be the bracket. The next three or four weeks is basically the bracket for the first-round pick. Yeah. But, but I don't know that, that Pierre Garçon seeing snaps is necessarily terrible because you can play lots of receivers at lots of different spots. And the wide receiver core is comprised of, of a couple of different people with a couple of different styles. I do think injury is is really limiting Garcon this year. He had a very, very good season last year, of course. Before his injury, he was on pace for 1,000 yards. This year, he's been, I think, a little bit more curious. You mentioned it. I think, honestly, it's it's his injury. And, of course, he only played, well, like 45% of the snaps. I think you mentioned it earlier, 55% of the snaps uh, this game because of that knee injury. And this week, he's doubtful. I think it's probably more injury for Pierre Garcon than anything else. But if you look at the overall snaps for the wide receivers, George Kittle has the most pass snaps, of course. That makes sense. He's basically the number one option in this offense right now. And he's got 225 pass snaps. But then after that, you're looking at uh, you're looking at players like Trent Taylor, who still has 145 snaps. You're looking at Marquise Goodwin, who's got 124. Of course, he's been limited with injury. Kendrick Bourne, 97. Dante Pettis, 77. They, of course, have also been injured. Well, Dante Pettis has been injured as well. So I do think that they're getting snaps, and I do think they're able to gain some of that that valuable experience that they would need that players like, say, Solomon Thomas aren't necessarily getting because you just don't have that many interior rush positions. But you do have the opportunity to play Trent Taylor in the slot. You do have the ability to play Dante Pettis all over the place. And so I don't know that Garcon necessarily limits the the development of the wide receivers like some other positions are being limited. But I, but I do think that, to your point, if if Garcon's injured and and you're getting, you know, 60% Garcon at that point, you got you, you do have to see what else you have with these other players, especially now that Pettis is going to be ready to come back from injury. To sort of drag this out or not drag this out, but expand this to kind of a, a larger roster perspective, I wonder how much, not I don't want to say favoritism, but Shanahan continuing to really sort of you know, like you mentioned, he's giving snaps to these younger guys, but to identify guys like Garcon as the starter and Earl Mitchell defensively as a starter over, say, DJ Jones, who may not, you know, based on what's happening in practice, he may not be at the level that Earl Mitchell is, but we don't know necessarily if he's not getting a ton of run in games. I wonder how much of this is Kyle Shanahan not necessarily punting on this year, but recognizing that, like you mentioned, this is a team that's not particularly good. And, and likely won't win more than three, four, five games if they're very lucky. And how much of this is him saying, look, I'm going to keep up this sort of, uh, you know, uh, perspective or, uh, you know, keep up this image that we take care of veterans, that we, we keep veterans around and happy and we don't push them aside and whatever, because maybe that's part of the long-term plan that, that eventually he knows these young guys, the, you know, the high draft picks, whoever they are, Guys like Jimmy Garoppolo, they're going to have a high draft pick this year. When that, whenever that player comes in, he's going to be immediately identified as a guy that sort of has a lot of expectation riding on him. 
I wonder how much of this is Shanahan saying, let's keep veterans happy now so that as we have to go find those perhaps one or two pieces in free agency that that compiles a complete roster, guys want to come here and play for us. There's probably a little favoritism there. I mean, we know that Garcon was one of his guys. It's one of the it's one of the first signings that he made, and it's a player that has a history with Shanahan in his offense dating back to his Washington days. But but I do think that the this it kind of like styles make fights. And I do think that Shanahan is very clear in that you're going to have multiple styles that you're going to want to fight with. And sometimes you're going to have a wide receiver that separates with power at the top of the route. That's going to be Anquan Bolden. You've got Marquis Goodwin who separates with, well, what used to be speed, but is now much more precise route running than has been in years past. You've got Dante Pettis who separates with quickness at the top of the route. You've got Trent Taylor who separates underneath with his quickness and his ability to run a whip route. These are players that you can deploy like chess pieces around the field. And so uh, even if Garcon were to be sat down, you know, I, I question whether or not we have another player that could get you know, a four-yard reception when you need four yards on a slant who's going to have that body in the frame to keep a corner off of him and still catch that ball in traffic. I think Marquise Goodwin is the best wide receiver the 49ers have, but I don't know that I'm going to run him on a drag route with three yards to go uh, you know, to catch that ball in traffic unless he can blow by a linebacker. With Trent Taylor, he's not going to body a receiver underneath. So I do think that Shanahan is creating a complementary style of wide receiving core. I do think, though, that even though the skills complement each other, the skill on the whole still lacks, generally speaking, after the top, which is Goodwin. Um, and then you can kind of, we can kind of quibble about whether it's, it's Garcon or whether it's Pettis or, or what have you. That's a fair point that at least stylistically, perhaps you're right. The reason Garcon's getting run is because they don't have they don't have players that can do what what he can do. And I'm, it'll be curious to see, like you mentioned, there, there have been a lot of injuries at this group. And it'll be interesting to see if at any point the totality or the whole of the group is healthy. That includes Taylor, Bourne, Goodwin, Pettis, and Garcon all kind of getting run. And maybe Richie James at some point is going to see a few snaps, but... As these guys keep coming back, I doubt he will. It'll be interesting to see how Shanahan, with a full game, and, and maybe it's going to come against a bad team where Beathard looks like a stud again, to see how Shanahan is is using these guys and, and getting them open. Now, you, you mentioned something on Twitter, and I don't want to leave this segment without you talking about it, but you mentioned that uh, Pettis was the best pure route runner on the team. Uh, and I believe my exact reply was Marquis Goodwin would like to have a word with you, sir. Uh, so why why is it that you think that Pettis is the best pure route runner? And I guess in that, I'd love to know what you mean by pure route runner. So I think that Pe- I would identify Pettis as the best pure route runner on this team because he doesn't have the the speed advantage that Marquis Goodwin has. And I think Marquis Goodwin is going to get, you know, it's not a lot in terms of of you know, the separation that they're going to get or what DBs are going to give them from a spacing perspective. But Marquis Goodwin is going to get an extra step or two off from the defensive back that is, you know, particularly if, if it's a deep shell, a defensive back that knows that he's got to run with Marquis Goodwin deep is going to is going to play deeper off to start than they would with Pettis. Uh, what I really like about Pettis and what I liked about him when he was coming out and what I liked about him in limited snaps thus far this year is that I think he has a tremendous ability to understand bend and and more than anything sort of lean and leverage at the top of routes right before he makes his break. I will say that if we just line up the blaze out concept from both of them, then I'll give that one to Goodwin because very few people can break out of that concept quite like he can. And and so you've already you you know exactly where I'm going to go because that's exactly the route I was going to bring up. I was going to bring the blaze out specifically because that that route for those that are that are not familiar is a route that is specific to the Shanahan tree of offenses. So you'll see McVeigh run this. You'll of course see Shanahan run this. You'll see Lafleur run this as well. Um, basically, it is a, an out route from within the numbers, but it looks a lot like the post. And it is the wide receiver going straight up that vertical stem and, and compressing the space between him and the cornerback. And then immediately it's going to look like he's going to go to the post, but then he basically stops and comes back outside. Uh, and, and it's basically you know a, a really difficult route for a wide receiver to run because it requires really, really good change of direction. It requires you to be really accurate with your feet. And it's just, it's overall, it's very difficult. Julio Jones is the best example at running this route. And and I think that Marquise Goodwin has gotten very, very good at running that route. Wasn't so much at the beginning of year one, 
But the touchdown that he scored a couple of weeks ago was where he was just wide open near the end zone was exactly this concept. And, and I do think that he is able to speed is very, very helpful. But speed is only good in terms of route running when you can throttle that speed back and stay in control. Dante Pettis has a he's still a very, very fast uh, wide receiver. He ran, I think, like a four, three, seven or something at one of the Husky pro days. He didn't I don't think he tested at the combine, but he's still a very fast receiver. And, and Dante Pettis has a very different type of separation style from Marquise Goodwin. Marquise Goodwin has very, very quick, choppy feet, and he can get in and out of his breaks in, in a different way than Pettis can. They're both very good. But I think right now at their respective points in their career, Marquise Goodwin is a better route runner. And that route running has developed over the last two years because he wasn't that way in Buffalo. If you would say Marquise Goodwin two years ago, I'd be like, yeah, Pettis may be a little actually better route runner than, than Marquise Goodwin. But I think right now, Dante Pettis has the, the most promise. And I think if he can get better, he may be better than Marquise Goodwin. But right now, I absolutely think Marquise Goodwin is but not only the best wide receiver, but a better route runner than, than Dante Pettis. I think I think that's fair to say that perhaps Pettis has more promise absolutely than than Goodwin. Like you mentioned, Goodwin's development, particularly in the last two years, and he mentioned this in training camp last year, that that he really began to sort of take pride in not just being that that speed guy and having the ability to run every route in a route tree and to really separate with more than just I'll run past you, but some of the other things that he can do. I remember watching him in one-on-ones and he ran a stop route you know, or you know, to some people, a curl, comeback, whatever you want to call it, a hitch. Uh, but it was about an eight-yard hitch, if you will. And and his ability to throttle down, like you mentioned, is really what's so elite. That he, he bursts off the line and as he sells you vertically, it is so hard and so fast and looks so committed. And he can immediately drop his weight and settle that route down. It's just ridiculously difficult to deal with. And and it's it's nice that the 49ers are at a spot where we even get to talk about this, that there may be two above average route runners on this offense going forward. That's that's where we're at. Jesus, we have two above average receivers. Oh my God. It's it's a we're it's an embarrassment of riches. Yeah. <laughs> it's only it's only we can get them the ball. Oh, fuck. That's so sad. Jesus. Uh, All right. But there's another actual wrinkle when we're talking about defensive utilization that I wanted to talk about. And that's going to be Solomon Thomas actually playing in his natural position. Holy hell. It happened. Robert Sala, apparently friend of the pod. He listens to the show. He must listen to the show because that's the only conclusion that we can draw at this point. We had we've been ranting for weeks about how Sala is misutilizing personnel on the defensive side, especially with Solomon Thomas, because he's not getting any snaps at the interior. And this week, Solomon Thomas played 15 snaps along the interior, by far the most snaps he's ever played in a game along the interior this season. It's 20, the 15 snaps that he played along the interior were 25% of this season's total interior snaps for Solomon Thomas. He's only had 60 snaps on the interior this entire season. 15 of them came in this game. He played on both sides, left and right, including one snap at nose tackle. And, and so the question then becomes, okay, if Solomon Thomas is playing at three technique most of the time, and depending on the alignment, maybe nose tackle, what the hell happens to DeForest Buckner? Well, DeForest Buckner was moved to one technique, traditionally a nose tackle alignment, traditionally where you're going to see Earl Mitchell and whomever it is that we're trotting out there at nose tackle. And, and that's it was great. It was a new wrinkle. We started out the game in that defensive line alignment, and it went really, really well. Solomon Thomas had three stops, which is the most he's had all season. Usually he hovers around zero or one. And he had had three stops this game. He played phenomenally in the run game because he is a very, very, very good run defender. His pass rush grade was still not great, but it was better than normal because he was able to use his athleticism against guards. So by and large, I think that's one hell of an alignment when I hope the Niners use. And, And it's something that it's like, yes, do that more. Do that more. And I hope that Salah doesn't move away from it. I hope it wasn't just a one game trotted out against the division rival kind of thing. But Solomon Thomas, man, he's he's a three technique. That's what he is. We we thought he might be something else, but that's OK. Let's play him where he's actually going to be good and let him develop there. And this was hopefully the first game in that direction. And we've mentioned that a little bit talking together, this idea that, you know, as much as you want a front office to be able to evaluate pure talent, 
You also want them to be able to evaluate talent and recognize the fit in the scheme. And Solomon Thomas has never been the kind of player that you would look at and say, this is a guy that really bends on the edge well. He's going to be a natural outside edge rusher. And just, I mean, in terms of run defense, he, he sets an edge well. He plays hard. He's got some hustle. But rushing the passer and really being a, a, sort of utilizing some of what he does have from an athletic ability and explosiveness standpoint, it's going to come inside. And it came inside in college as well. Like you mentioned, this idea that you need sort of a, you know, Earl Mitchell body type, short, squatty guy playing nose t- tackle in the NFL. And that's that's a farce. That's not that's not accurate to today's NFL landscape, to what you're seeing from offensive linemen in terms of size and development or from what you're seeing or what you're seeing from offenses in terms of play calling stylistically what teams are, are trying to do. So two players like Buckner and Solomon Thomas on the interior, while you you might not see you know a combined 15 sacks from those two players, there is a fair amount of disruption. And the, the saying is, you know, in some cases, disruption is production. Maybe it's not a sack and maybe it doesn't end with sort of all these big flashy Pro Bowl caliber numbers, but they are disrupting a pocket. They are difficult to block inside with both of those two guys lined up in sort of those interior interior gaps. One of them is, or if you choose to double team both of them, you are going to give your outside players a significantly easier task. If you're going to get Buckner at nose, you're going to likely see some doubles and some down blocks there that take multiple blockers. So in terms of the variability that you get up front, it's significantly increased by moving Solomon Thomas inside. And more importantly, you're actually using a high, a high draft pick to be a productive player. And that's the thing. I get the logic behind trying Solomon Thomas at edge. The logic was that the edge position is such a valuable position in football that if you can get him to hit there, you, you've hit it. It's great. It's amazing. Okay, you try it. You give it the O'College try. It didn't work. Now move him back to his more natural position. DeForest Buckner is good enough at football that he's going to succeed at one technique. His grade in this game was around at, around where he played over the course of the season. I think it was his still his third highest grade of the season against the Rams. And, and this was Solomon Thomas' second single game, second highest single grade of the year. And, and when you look at their snaps on the whole, because now Solomon Thomas has had 60 snaps along the interior, which is about one game's worth of snaps. His overall grade, 71.9, would be the tops for his career. I'm going to double check that just to make sure I'm not giving you bullshit. But his run defense grade would still be very, very good. And his pass rush grade was actually higher along the interior than it was along the edge. Everything, every grade that I've listed there, 71 overall, 69 for run defense, 63 for pass rush. Those are all the, the grades that are better than what he does at the edge, except for run defense. He's really good against tight ends and run defense. Like you cannot block Solomon Thomas with the tight end in run defense. It's ridiculous. So overall, he's a better player and pass rush is slightly better in just 60 snaps along the interior. You have to see more of that. You have to do more of that because this was the third overall pick. This was your first attempt at picking a player to put on this team and you want to play him where he naturally fits and where he has had success in the past in his career. It makes little sense to me for you as a team to say, okay, we know he didn't work out at edge and that's okay, but now let's just keep trotting him out at edge like 30% of the snaps. That's going to be a good utilization of talent. Absolutely not. Every single snap that Earl Mitchell is out is a waste. And and so let's put him there. Let's put Solomon Thomas at one technique. He should have roughly a 50-50 split of edge to interior snaps. And that's what I'd love to see for the rest of the season over the court, because I think that he could develop into a very, very good interior defender as long as he's given the opportunity. Like you mentioned, you know, we talked about sort of evaluating younger guys earlier. I think this is separate from that case. This is not get younger guys on the field regardless of how they stack up and let's see what happens. This is the case of Earl Mitchell not being particularly good relative to these other two players in terms of Buckner and Solomon Thomas being inside. And more than anything, just utilizing talent in a way that's going to help this team be successful and and more importantly, begin to generate some kind of pass rush. This shows a little bit of uh, self-awareness from Robert Sala, and, and he's heard his name, I'm sure, 
mentioned quite a bit lately because there is a little bit of a curiosity. Well, he listens to the podcast. He has to. He I listens mean, to the show, so we know. When he does something <laughs> right, you can assume that he heard it on this podcast first. So I, I think it's fair for us to say that we could take credit for Earl Mitchell not dropping into zone quite as much last week, uh, regardless of the overall score. But really, it's it's a nice bit of awareness to say we've got to do something different with this player because we've got to get some production here. Yeah, so I just confirmed it. 71.9 overall grade would indeed be the highest grade uh, overall grade for a season for Solomon Thomas's career. In 27, his or 2017, his overall grade was 55. Uh, and so far this year, his overall grade, and of course that combines interior and edge snaps, would be 67.5. So if you take his 60 interior interior snaps as a sample, that 71 grade, uh, 71.9 grade would indeed be the highest that we've, or the best that we've seen Solomon Thomas perform. So that's the best that he's performed along the interior. Let's see more and more of that. And so Sala, if you're listening, um, put some sunblock on that shiny dome of yours because I worry about you in the Santa Clara heat and the sun. Uh, but once you prevent skin cancer on your shiny dome, then play Solomon Thomas along the interior because that's that's my spotlight player for this week. Uh, I think he had a phenomenal game, and, and that's what I'd love to see more of. Uh, but Jared, who was your spotlight player for this week against the Rams? My spotlight player for the week was Joe Staley. And, you know, sort of just ca- casually watching the game on Sunday, you know, the 49ers offensive line as a whole looked like they got beat up pretty good against the Rams. And it's easy to look at that unit in totality and say this group didn't do very good. And in some cases, it looked like Staley didn't play particularly well. But going back through uh, in a couple manners, first off, looking at PFF grades, he was in the 80s for everything, 89.6 grade pass blocking, which is, I mean, all of these grades are really, really impressive, still very high level grades. Um, But just in terms of watching plays, you could tell that I think some of the the issues that it appeared like Staley had this week were more that Lakin Tomlinson was absolutely chewed up by Aaron Donald and just could not deal with with that interior speed and power. And, you know, Aaron Donald is an all-pro. He's arguably the best player, defensive player in football right now. And so this is not to say that Lakin Tomlinson is always some chump, but this was comfortably his worst game of the year. And therefore, I think it sort of trickled down to Staley or rather over to Staley as well, where it just looked like that that duo couldn't quite get things going on that side. What I really appreciate about Staley is that you, you can tell in terms of physically what's happening there is a little bit of, you know, I don't want to say regression in, you know, in some negative connotation, but he is not the high level athlete, you know, this first round, excellent, you know, stalwart decade long left tackle that he was when he first came out. But he still is winning with really, really impressive technical ability, particularly as a pass protector. His hand usage, in my opinion, has even improved. And his ability to time his strikes so that he is using as much leverage and and more than anything sort of counterweight to what a defensive player is giving him because he doesn't quite have that same raw power that he's always had. He's now able to sort of counter, counter a defensive player's weight and, and leverage and balance to then still be effective technically as a pass protector. And that's what I think is really impressive. The 49ers are at a spot where they're likely not going to be competing this year. It's hard to tell what they're going to do next year. They've obviously got some serious holes to address uh, at some serious positions like Leo and to, to really find some long-term answers. But I'm curious, and this might be more of a discussion topic, but this 49ers window, even with Jimmy Garoppolo this year, didn't look like this was going to be a... Uh, a, a highly competitive team, and perhaps they sneak into the playoffs wild card. But they're certainly weren't going to. They certainly weren't going to be a team that's challenging the Chiefs, the Rams, some of the AFC top tier teams. Which who knows exactly who they are because it seems like a new team every week. Whether it's the Steelers, Bengals, Jaguars, Patriots, whoever it is, aside from the Chiefs, there. Uh, but it looks like the 49ers window is is not quite as open and and current as it may have originally seemed. And I'm, I'm curious from a let's take care of this guy who's done so much perspective, if there is such a thing, if Joe Staley over the next week might be a potential trade target or rather a, someone on the trade block that they're saying, look, this guy is not going to realistically win a Super Bowl here. Do, do you think the 49ers, and maybe this is more of a, a open for discussion, is this a player that the 49ers should consider get, doing him a little personal favor and sending him off? Do you think that's something that Staley would even want? 
Nah, absolutely not. I I don't know. My question was going to be whether or not you think Staley is going to be around in the NFL much longer, because I, I don't know that that Staley has more than another year in him. And, and I think maybe he's got one more full year with Jimmy Garoppolo and then maybe he calls it a career. Um, I, I don't think that he's one of the players that that is going to be traded, even though he probably would come at a value for someone um, and provide some help. I, I If I were to pick some trade targets for the Niners, I think you're looking at Eric Armstead, Jimmy Ward, some of the kind of usual names and usual cul- culprits. I don't know that Joe Staley is is on that uh, is on that train. And, and I don't think the team would want to trade him because I, I don't know that. That makes a whole hell of a lot of sense right now. It really doesn't. Um, I think that you you roll with this line for as long as you can, uh, and then eventually, once he leaves, you move McGlinchey over to left tackle, and, and then you kind of figure out what your right tackle situation looks like. But I think that answer is just unequivocally no. So you're saying that in terms of overall season-long development, particularly for a guy like Beathard, it's better to have Joe Staley and Mike McGlinchey than, say, Mike McGlinchey and Gary Gilliam? Uh, I think Gary Gilliam should, and, and again, it's Gary Gilliam, which I know that you speak Spanish, so you can do it with me. You can you can jump on the Gary Gilliam train. Uh, it's actually, you know what? Let me hear you say it. Let me let, let's let's hear some of the Gary Gilliam. It's it's definitely got to be Mike McGlinchey and Gary Gilliam for the 49ers. Ah, see, forward. look at that. That was great. I even detected a slight hint of Spain in there. <laughs> Are you going to tell me you're from Barcelona? What's going on here? Yeah, drop the the th sound. There's absolutely yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of Joe Montana and the Tath. <laughs> Dwight Clark. Es que lo que pasa. Yeah. yeah, it's it's definitely. Uh, I I don't know that it has anything to do with with Beathard's development, and I do think that the team is not in. They're definitely in rebuild mode. They're not in fire sale mode, and I think the Raiders are in fire sale mode, and I think obviously the Giants are in fire sale mode. I think the Niners version of the fire sale was what they did when when Lynch and Shanahan took over, which was purge the roster of who they didn't think was there and then see what what kind of shook out. I think that they're looking to build from here on out and, and retain the pieces that could help be bridges. And I think that, that Joe Staley is a bridge player. And, you know, we did in the in the offseason, we did a, a breakdown of the roster where we kind of broke down based on quadrants where everyone on the roster fit. And there are players that were up and coming. And then there are players that were, were just transitional players. And, and they're going to bridge you from one era of the team to another. And you may be looking for their replacement, but they're still very serviceable players right now. And you need those players on your team to help kind of grow and groom these younger players. And I think that's what Joe Staley is. He's the person who's going to impart what the Niners of 2012, 2013 were to the, the rest of these players and teach them how to watch film, teach them how to be good NFL players, and then he's going to move on. But I do think right now he's still in the active process of helping the team do that. That's a good point. I didn't even think about that, that at some point they do have to have, uh, to steal your term, they've got to have some of these bridge players that that do sort of set the standard of what's expected and, and how you compete. And, you know, some of all those, all those cliches about, you know, being a professional and, and veteran presence and veteran leadership, but you're right. At some point it's gotta be some of these guys and looking at, you know, overall roster and who's been there the longest after Joe Staley, you know, are you going to leave this task up to guys like Jimmy Ward, who, as you mentioned, could be gone before he knows it. And so, so that's a fair point that, that he may by virtue of being kind of, longest tenured, maybe not having much longer in the league and the 49ers recognizing, you know, Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch recognizing that they do need some sense of leadership there. You're right. He might be kind of the last one to go because he's that, that bridge, as you mentioned. Well, as we're talking about rosters and roster construction and fire sales specifically, let's get to the next game because I think the rough part of the Niners schedule is just about over that, that opening slate was going to be tough. We knew it was going to be tough. I mean, the Vikings, the chiefs, the Chargers, the Packers, the Rams. I mean, those games, if you were looking at the beginning of the year and, and you're doing the whole, like, I'm going to circle this as a win or a loss, I thought the Lions and the Cardinals were wins, and I thought we would open the season, you know, like two and four. Uh, but instead, we're one and five. Um, or I guess one and six now. But uh, now we're going into an easier stretch of the schedule. It's the Cardinals, the Raiders, the Giants, and then the Bucks, and of course, the first three teams that I listed all have one win. At this point, this is officially the four-team bracket for the first overall pick in the NFL draft. It's the Cardinals, Raiders, Giants, and of course, the Niners, all one-win teams. And we now know that the Giants and the Raiders are in absolutely full Sashi mode. They are just 
fire sailing everyone. So at this point, the question is whether or not the Niners are going to be able to pull this game out. And of course, the first change for the for the Cardinals is going to be a new offensive coordinator in Byron Leftwich. So how do you think Byron Leftwich is going to change this offense from one Mr. Archaic Mike McCoy? I think that Byron Leftwich, you know, he's really not that far separated from his playing career. And in doing some bit of background research on him, Bruce Arians in particular had a quote where he mentioned specifically that he had been himself grooming Leftwich over the last few seasons to be an OC and to eventually be an, uh, a head coach. And I read Bruce Arians' book, Quarterback Whisperer, last summer, and or you know not last, I mean four months ago, and it was all about you know sort of his philosophically how he interacts with quarterbacks and and what he builds in his offense to protect players and all this sort of thing the highlight and he mentioned it over and over again in his book is that every every play call has a shot play inherently built into it and he is you know at any point particularly he mentioned with Carson Palmer who had a fantastic arm when healthy at any point he told his quarterback go ahead and let it rip if you when in doubt throw it deep and we'll take our chances and it'll be exciting from a sort of a, a a, watch, a viewer perspective to see how the Cardinals now push their rookie quarterback, Josh Rosen, to do that and how Leftwich, what Leftwich has taken from Arians in, in, in scheme and play calling. And at the same time, this is the middle of the season and you can't overhaul everything. And so while Mike McCoy's system, you know, might not quite match some of Bruce Arians' thoughts philosophically, what's in is in. Left, which might be able to design some wrinkles to call some things differently to get the shots he wants, but they're still going to be operating in that sort of overall system. More than anything, left, which early on is going to have to lean on some of that important talent. And a major piece that's been missing from this offense is David Johnson, who is, when healthy, you know, a top five back in the league. I think you're absolutely right about David Johnson. You know, I, I've got it here in the agenda as the curious case of the missing Johnson. Uh, because that, of course, uh, feeds rule number, I think, one, which is the Johnson rule of the drinking game. Whenever something sounds dirty but isn't, you drink. Uh, so we'll go ahead and take a drink uh, here for just a sec, and then we'll get into the curious case of the missing Johnson. All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the whole missing Johnson, because in 2016, he, of course, had his breakout year. 60% of his 1,200 and some odd yards came after contact. Or, I'm sorry, fewer than 60% of his 1,243 yards came after contact. That, is, that, that means that his line is blocking really, really well for him. Now, in 2018, 74% of his rushing yards have come after contact, which means that his, his offensive line is not doing a very, very good job. Four of the Cardinals' five starting offensive linemen have earned run block grades under 60 this season, and their best run blocker, DJ Humphreys, has just a 65.6 run block grade through Week 7. By and large, the Cardinals team is just worse now than it was in 2016. David Johnson's line is not blocking for him nearly as well, and he's not able to get the same yards as he was before. And as a passer, of course, Mike McCoy did, or as a receiver, I should say, in the passing game, Mike McCoy just did not use David Johnson well whatsoever. His targets were down. The way he was utilized was down. I think if Byron Leftwich can do one thing, and that's actually going to bode poorly for the Niners' win prospects, good for the, for the 49ers' Joey Bosa prospects, he's going to just change the way the team uses David Johnson. And if they do, they're going to have a much better chance of being in this game if the Niners don't turn the ball over three or four times. He has to find some way to, like you mentioned, to manufacture touches for this guy. In terms of his overall talent, he's a... He's a had the benefit of an impressive run-blocking offensive line when he really stood out in, in 2016, at least statistically, and, and what he was able to get on the ground before, like you mentioned, dealing with contact. But in in the receiving game, what he does as an open-field player and as a three-down weapon for that team has been lost, particularly this season. And at the name of the game at some point, as, as flashy as teams want to make it and as exciting as it can be when guys like Shanahan can scheme up these phenomenal touches for a guy like Raheem Mostert, the, at the end of a game, you know, it's about who's got superstars. And David Johnson, by all means, should be a feature back in an offense. The Cardinals have to find a way to use his talents better because they're they're a bad team. And like it or not, he should be 
all over the field all the time. Is that, you know, a little bit of, is there maybe some hesitation to protect an asset long-term? I have no idea, but the fact that he hasn't seen the production that you would expect, whether he's coming back from an injury or not, this is a guy that needs to be a focal point, especially in an offense with a rookie quarterback where you'd like to be able to lean on the run game or at worst, give him a go-to guy in some manner. Aside from Larry Fitzgerald, an underwhelming, sort of not quite as impressive as you'd expect receiving core, regardless of the fact that Christian Kirk scored pretty for, uh, pretty easily on the 49ers defense to begin their their last game. But overall, this is this is the player to lean on, and, and hopefully, not hopefully for the 49ers' sake at least, but I'm sure that Leftwich is recognizing that, that he's got to get Johnson more involved earlier in a more variety of ways. What's funny is when I think about the the coach that Josh Rosen would have fit best with, I would have thought it would have been Bruce Arians. And so because of his kind of big arm nature and his ability to take deep shots down the field, I thought that would have played very, very well with the no risk it, no biscuit philosophy. And instead you get Mike McCoy, which is, you know, I'm not sure exactly what his philosophy is. I think his philosophy was take me back to 2008. So now you've got an offense that you can't change an offense overnight. The plays are going to be the same. The language is going to be the same. The playbook is going to be the same, but the types of plays that he calls, what plays make it into the game plan and and the aggressiveness of the team, I think will most definitely change. And so when I look at matchups in this game and I think, okay, what am I going to watch? What do I think is going to turn the game? I think that Rosen versus the safeties is going to be something that I'll be watching because now you've got DJ Reed in four Adrian Colbert. Adrian Colbert, of course, goes on IR with a high ankle sprain. And I think now you've got a a safety that hasn't played, I think, so far in limited snaps, DJ Reed has played as well or better than Adrian Colbert. I'm curious whether or not he's going to be able to continue to develop as a safety, DJ Reed. Tart has played better these last few weeks as well. So I'm curious whether or not they're going to be able to go up against Rosen and defeat any attempts that he has at making those long passes because I do think Leftwich is going to take more shots down the field. And so that's the first thing I'll be watching. Uh, What are you going to be watching in terms of individual matchups in this game against Arizona? Individual matchups. I'm watching Chandler Jones. And four weeks ago, if you had asked me if this was the player that I would be watching when the 49ers play the Cardinals, I don't know that I would say, you know, unequivocally yes. But he absolutely dominated in their last game. And I would argue was the difference maker between the 49ers potentially winning a game in division against a poor opponent and instead losing with Josh Rosen's first start and against a team that they really shouldn't have lost to. Chandler Jones did everything in that game from being an edge-setting run defender, created turnovers, was a nightmare to, to deal with in terms of pass protection, So I'll be watching him and hopefully the 49ers come more prepared to deal with him uh, this game and perhaps bring him back down. And Chandler Jones is good, but Chandler Jones looked like arguably the best. He looked like he had an Aaron Donald-esque game on the edge against the 49ers where it looked like he was all over the place. So hopefully the 49ers come a little bit more heat this week in terms of preparedness to deal with him. Yeah, you know, when I look at what the the team is also doing on offense, I think, okay, Patrick Peterson is hopefully, probably, not not hopefully, he's probably going to shadow Goodwin, even though Peterson hasn't shattered as much this year as he has in previous years. But if they go back to what they've done in previous years, he'll shadow Goodwin. And that means that it's basically every other wide receiver against Ben Ben Wickery. And that is a matchup that I'm going to be watching as well, because we do have wide receivers that should be able to win that matchup individually against Ben Wickery. So I think that's probably what I'll be looking for. I think that when you look at other things that are going to turn the game, it's got to be pressure on Rosen. That's what the Niners did the first time that they met. And that's going to be something that is is going to be able to keep the Niners in the game is if the defense can get to Rosen. In their first game, they only pressured Rosen 12 times. But in those 12 pressures, Rosen was 3 for 10. He, he was sacked once. He only attempted. Uh, he only completed three passes, attempted 10. There were five players for the 49ers that had above average pass rush grades. The only other time that happened was against the Lions, which, of course, was a win. So if the Niners are able to get to Josh Rosen, pressure him, move him off of his spot, make him uncomfortable, you're going to see rookie quarterback be rookie quarterback. And, and that's where the Niners can really begin maybe to get their first turnover in like forever. 
Uh, it's where they're going to be able to be in this game. And it's what allowed them to stay in the game the last time the 49ers and, and Cardinals played, even though they ended up losing by double digits because of an eventual defensive touchdown. So I think that's probably going to be the key to the game is whether or not the team can get to Rosen. To that end, I'd like to see Ronald Blair get some continued run in terms of uh, pass rushing. He had 34 pass rushing snaps against Green Bay. He had just 10 against the Rams. Some of that may be score and personnel and what the 49ers defensively were trying to do, which I hope wasn't give up a bunch of points, but that was the result nonetheless. I think Blair is a player that is never going to be a a high-level starter, but is reasonably in the conversation for long-term depth guy. You know, somebody that when his rookie contract is up might be re-signed on the fairly cheap, a la someone like Ricky John-Francois when he was here. He's, in my opinion, battling Cassius Marsh. And and to really be a, you know, again, ideally not a starter, but perhaps a three, four-year depth piece that with his body type could play most special teams, can really do, do some... Uh, impressive things on the field when his motor's really running hot. So I'd like to see him get some more snaps uh, to see if he has an opportunity, perhaps when the 49ers get into, it used to be called sort of those NASCAR packages on the defensive line, thinking back to kind of Detroit Lions and, and Philadelphia Eagles, Jim Schwartz days. But when they perhaps go with a pass rushing, you know, combo or, or group of Buckner, Solomon Thomas, Ronald Blair, maybe Cassius Mars, but ideally Sheldon Day, and see those you know players like that sort of personnel grouping really getting after the quarterback. It'd be nice, to, it'd be nice to see Ronald Blair on the edge and really get some run. This, in my opinion, is a good game to do it, where he's going against a, a fairly poor offensive line. In terms of technicality, you're not going to see a veteran out there that's going to you know really exploit his lack of long-term experience. So give him some run and see what happens. And like you mentioned, Maybe with that hustle and effort, they get after Rosen enough to to begin generating some turnovers and getting this turnover margin, more importantly, to swing in the 49ers' favor, at least week by week. And I don't know what the team saw or sees in Cassius Morris. She seemed like a rotational, at best, player. And the team thought that they could roll with him at Leo. And I'm not entirely sure why. He, there was a, a snap that I think Brandon Thorne tweeted out earlier where Marsh just gets completely abused in the game against the Rams. And, and it's just, it's not, he's not a very, very good player. He's not. And so if we can get him off the field and, and get anyone else on the field, I'm all for it. I'm really, really all for it. And, and I think Ronald Barry, you have to remember that he was a super athletic defensive lineman coming out of, didn't he come out of like Appalachian State or Missouri? One of the two is like yeah, black and yellow. Yeah, I forget. Appalachian State, yep. Yeah, he and he was another high uh, kind of peace park guy, super athletic. Uh, and I mean, the play that he had where he completely blew up the jet sweep against the Rams was great. It, it was, you know, that's the reaction kind of speed and, and tackling power that the Niners, I think, need. He He's had some up and down games and he's had some games where he's had some great snaps and some games where maybe they weren't so so awesome. But I think overall... Uh, he is a player that, yeah, maybe he should get some snaps, uh, especially based on athletic, on his athletic profile. He was on the bubble, of course, earlier this year. He almost didn't make the team, but he snuck in, and I think he's been a, a good depth player, uh, unlike one Mr. Cassius Marsh, who on the year is playing below average overall and really is, believe it or not, his only above average grade is in run defense, uh, and it's like slightly above average. And, and, you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's cash. That's the panda bear or no, the polar bear. I think polar is what they bear, call him. Yeah. Uh, I think, Just I think wild. that's cause he's white. Yeah. White he, as he, I think, as he mentioned white on the inside, black, or excuse me, white on the outside, black on the inside. Yeah. That's, I've, I've not heard that. I've heard coconut cause uh, I've been referred to as a coconut brown on the outside, white on the inside. Uh, I've heard banana or pineapple. I've, I've not, I've never heard polar bear. Yeah. That's a new one. It's a, Needless to say, Cassius, that's a hard name for me to say, Cassius, Cassius, Cassius Marsh. Cassius Marsh. I'm, I, you know what? That That is the official Better Rivals name for Cassius Marsh. It's no longer Cassius. It's Cassius Marsh. I like that. Yeah. I like it. Needless to say, he's, a, uh, he's right. an oddball. Uh, yeah, he is. Uh, he's still really, really difficult to point out on tape because he's he's tattooed up, and so he doesn't look like a polar bear. He just looks like he's got a lot of really brown arms. Uh, but all right, so prediction. I think the the Vegas line basically has this as a pick'em. You can sometimes find Niners by one. You can sometimes find the Cardinals by one. But basically, it's a pick'em. 
What do you think is going to happen in the game? And do you think the Niners cover slash win? I think that this is the week that the 49ers actually show up and show up being sort of hedged with the uh, knowledge that this is against the Arizona Cardinals and not against, say, the Kansas City Chiefs or the Los Angeles Rams. I predict the 49ers to win this game, uh, but close, playing uh, in Arizona. I suspect that the game will come down or rather uh, end with uh, a score that is within three or so. I'll give the 49ers a 20-17 to win. Now that you're the optimist, I don't feel the pressure to be the optimist because when David is on, he is absolutely the pessimist. And so I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to go ahead and pick every, every game a, a Niners win. But now I can be like, you know what? Uh, th- this is the first bracket, first game elimination for the first overall pick. Let's do it. Let's, uh, let's go for Bosa. I think it's another multiple turnover game for C.J. Beathard. C.J. Beathard, I don't know that he has had a single game without a turnover, whether it be a fumble or a pick. Let's set in his career. In addition to this, this pick, I'm... Really quickly, C.J. Beathard, 2.5 turnovers this game, over or under? Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good line. I'm actually going to go under. I'm going to say that it is one pick and one fumble, so under the 2.5 line, but still two turnovers, and I think one of those turnovers directly results in the score that breaks the Niners back, and they end up leaving once again with a loss against Arizona because I think Byron Leftwich is going to be a shot in the arm for Arizona, and I think the Niners' defense still can't line up correctly on the goal line, and they still can't cover gaps or put too many people in one gap. There's a picture I tweeted out. Or no, I think someone else tweeted out a, a play where we had three players in two gaps because Fred Warner is like, yeah, this makes sense. Let's, let, let me just go ahead and stand over this guard, even though both gaps are covered. Uh, so I think the Niners are still going to have lots of problems, and they're playing a game that will seem more competitive, but ultimately they'll lose the turnover battle and they'll lose the game. And how uh, ironic that, you know, a game like this where the 49ers could use, I think, a little bit of perhaps good juju and and sort of good feelings because it's it's been a rough stretch. And they're going against a team that they are in direct, as you mentioned, sort of competition with with for this first pick. And, you know, we've been using terms like elegant tank. It's going to be interesting to see where the 49ers take this and if they recognize one way or another, hey, we need to win to keep some fan favor or let's lose. And, you know, I don't know that teams go out there, you know, specifically to lose. It's the NFL and these guys are all ultra competitive. But there is a, you know, if there is a benefit to losing, it's that they are perhaps one step closer to identifying top tier talent with the first overall pick in the draft and not having to wait around for their guy who presumably will be Nick Bosa and and hopefully an edge defender for him. Yeah, I think at this point, like I was almost almost ready to break out the Bosa film this week. I, I'm, I'm just about there. I think next week and definitely on the bye week, I'm going to break out some Bosa film because it's, I mean, it's there. I'm, I'm already there. I'm already in peak offseason mode. My offseason is like a year and a half long and it sucks. Yeah, it felt like we didn't really get much of an NFL season before it got right back into uh, potential draft. Just bet. about three games. Yeah. Yeah. Just about three games. That's, that's all it was. And it sucks. And it sucks miserably. But Oh, goodness. Well, it's going to be another game where, you know what? As an Iner fan, any outcome is great. If you win, fantastic. Enjoy the win. I love to win. I hate losing. I want to win every game. But if you're not going to win every game, then let's justify it and, and kind of assuage our, our fears and, and mollify our souls with the, 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 the prospects of a, an, uh, an elite edge rusher at the end of this horrid, horrid season. So either way, it's a win. One is just delayed pleasure, so to speak. Uh, Maybe it's football edging, if you will, where uh, then you get the immediate win if you win. And so you know what? It's a win-win, ultimately. It it has to be. Yeah, 49ers have an opportunity this week, or or rather uh, may miss an opportunity with the Arizona Cardinals utilizing their Johnson more. Uh, The 49ers will have some delayed (laughs) satisfaction Uh, but hopefully, nonetheless, uh, some satisfaction of sorts. You're always good for one every episode, and especially near the end. You always always bring it up the rear with a good dick joke, I guess is what we're saying. Uh, (laughs) Cherish, thanks again, man. It was good to have you back. Uh, I miss hearing your voice, and I miss talking ball, man. Always my pleasure. Thank you for having me, regardless of whether we're jumping on a Womp Womp Wednesday following another loss. Hopefully there's not too many of these. Well, there can't there can't be too many more of these in sight. 
No, then the season is limited to 16 games, and unless they unless they extend it to 18 under my nose, uh, we are just about halfway done with this absolute reign of terror that is football. So uh, it, it'll be it'll be good. We're gonna you know what we're we're gonna enjoy the game one way or another. Again, it's a win win, uh, and and we'll be back next week to to talk about uh, whether we're one step closer to Joey Bosa and got a first round elimination in the the basically suck off playoffs that that. Sounded way dirtier than I needed than I meant it to be. Let's let's end the show quickly before this gets off the rails. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. All right. You can always follow me at Better Rivals, Jared. Where can they follow you? Follow me on Twitter at Jared Brown, J-E-R-O-D. Brown like the color, and then hit the underscore for professionalism. That's exactly right. Uh, so thanks again for tuning in, everyone. And as always, go Niners. Hello, I'm Ashley Carmen. I'm Caitlin Tiffany. We're the hosts of Why'd You Push That Button, the Verge's show about all the choices technology forces us to make. We're back for season three, talking about questions like, why do you delete your tweets? And why do you type in lowercase letters that make you seem like a serial killer? And why are you on an exclusive dating app? You're not that special. We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and you can find this anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.